Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. If you're thinking, ooh, Matt Chorley sounding young and handsome, it's not Matt Chorley, it's Luke Jones. I'm sitting in. Uh, Matt is doing some kind of uh, special project investigation. I think he's having lots of renovation work doing. Um, he said it's going to cost a lot of money, but apparently some people in the office here at Times Radio are subbing him for it. Uh, ahead, we're going to be talking about protests, whether they actually work. We're going to be hearing from people who've been involved in some big protests. Did they actually get the progress or changes that they wanted? But first, our columnists, Libby Rachie today, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Let's talk about leaks, because uh, they're everywhere at the moment. Um, Rachel, I wonder, in terms of, we were hearing from opinion a little bit earlier on about how much this is cutting through with voters, and it seems to be a bit, but I guess the problem is it's it's all quite confusing um, and with so many different facets to it. Yeah, I think the issue that's most important is that this cuts through to the question of Boris Johnson's integrity. So when you've got uh, Dominic Cummings accusing him of being unethical, potentially unlawful and certainly um, wrong in how he behaved in terms of his character, then over time, I think that really does have an impact. But of course, the thing that will really matter and really be devastating for the Prime Minister, if there's, en- if there's any evidence that he can be linked to excess deaths in the COVID crisis. Uh, so if Cummings does have any uh, suggestion that as a result of um, the Prime Minister's decision to delay or whatever the lockdown that more people died I think that really would be bad I think that when it's you know who painted what who paid for what in terms of wallpaper or yes. it's embarrassing but it feels like it's just got there's so many he said she said involved it's very hard for that to cut through but if it deals with the pandemic or it deals with an absolutely clear lack of integrity, then I think that does begin to worry mm. people. <laughs> Which is, um, Patrick Maguire says in the Times Redbox mm. email this morning quite brilliantly, it's another thrilling edition of wallpaper invoicing news. Um, <laughs> but, but Libby, is, is Rachel right in terms of if it's related to the pandemic, if it's related to deaths, actually people's ears will prick up? You know, I, I, find it, I find it always difficult to disagree with Rachel, but I don't actually think so. I think people understand regarding the possibility of more deaths because of the delay in a lockdown that the prime minister, the government, they were on a tightrope. The economy really matters. People were losing jobs. People were losing heart. Uh, he really didn't want another lockdown. He thought he could avoid it. Some scientists told him he could avoid it. 
it turned out that actually there was a bad spike, mainly due to the variant, which people only really knew about the rapidly spreading variant in November. So I don't think that normally thinking people will be angry with him about that. The business about the Cummings accusations fascinates me because, I mean, yes, we could say that possibly as far as the Prime Minister's purity goes, uh, that ship has sailed some while ago. But what about Dominic Cummings's ship sailing? I mean, this is the man who led boat vote leave, who is known to have been the man putting the dodgy figure on the bus and backing it and spreading the fear that Turkey was about to be admitted to the EU, which was not true. You know, and, and then the Barnard Castle business. I do not think many voters or even many MPs have very much time for accusations from this particular man. But I guess if he is in front of a committee what, later next month and he's on the news bulletins repeating some of these, um, you know, some of the more juicier claims about Boris Johnson, that surely would have an impact, Rachel, even if people think, well, it is Dominic Cummings, we sort of know what we think about him. What I think people really hate is the sense that there's one rule for them and one rule for the rest of us. So I think that's why, as Libby's absolutely right, the Barnard Castle thing when Dominic Cummings drove all that way and during lockdown and then said it was all to do with getting his eye, testing his eyesight, um, that really cut through. And both the political parties actually found that really came up on the doorstep and also in focus groups that people were furious at the idea that somehow people involved in the government were behaving as if rules were for little people. Um, and I think that some of the allegations about Boris Johnson is is that, and that, and that he does have that attitude sometimes. He doesn't think the rules matter. He, do, he doesn't behave in the way that other politicians do. And until now, there's been a sort of tolerance of that among the public because he's a sort of bit of a cad, bit of a rogue, but he's our rogue, he's our cad. Um, but I think if that breaks that it, it could be a real tipping point because you know he he doesn't really play by the rules whether that's breaking international law or, or threatening to or you know in his personal life he he doesn't follow the rules um people have tolerated that but i'm not sure how long that will last if they begin to feel not tolerating it isn't in their mm. interest and if there is some kind of definitive proof that he said um that the thing which is on, on the front of the daily mail today that they let the bodies pile high in their, in their thousands comment if there is some kind of definitive proof that that happened libby do you think it's it will be easy for him to shake that off as a joke because well, go on I don't think that I, how, how do you think there's going to be definitive proof that will be a well, the suggestion you know, is audio recordings might exist. Uh, well, just conceivably, but yeah. I mean there there is a sort of exaggeration. P people understand exaggeration and bravura and bravado, and we may not like him, but I think a lot of people sort of get they, they kind of get him. And this is somebody who has been actually. I mean, you can't deny the fact he's been working hard all year in possibly the most difficult situation of any prime minister since the war. Um, he's been landed with this and he's been working at it. And for all his faults, I do not think people would would sort of immediately say, oh, goodness, he said it didn't mind people. Of course, he minded people dying. He showed us that with all the earlier lockdowns. He's showed us that since. Of course, he minds about it. Of course, he doesn't want the people to die. But sometimes people say wild things when they're working hard and thinking it through. I'm sure you have yourself, uh, or you will do, certainly. As I you don't know what you're suggesting, Libby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, honestly, I, I really cannot see that it's going to, that any of this stuff is going mm. to sort of go prick through any further. I think people have made their mind up that Boris Johnson is a wild card and sometimes troublesome 
and that's it. Because you know, they're not going to go any further with it. Because he's, he's, he's weathered these kind of things before. Um, of course, there was the case ages ago when um, Boris Johnson said um, cert in uh, Libya could become the new Dubai. Quote, all they have to do is clear away the dead bodies. Jim Pickard said that a year ago the PM <laughs> joked to manufacturers that the, their project to build more ventilators was Operation Last Gasp. Um, he said some things which people yeah, have taken again. Maybe it's just maybe it's just me. But I grew up with three brothers. I get black humour, mm. you know, and I do think that a lot of people do get black humour. And I, yes, sometimes he's disgraceful in many ways. But you know, I think people have sort of made their minds up now and just want to get on with their lives and do not want all this Westminster insiderish committee meeting who paid for the wallpaper stuff. I, I, I think there's an impatience with it. Yes, but but Rachel, I wonder if what, what do you think about the building pictures? Of course, when we started this whole Sleaze discussion, it was about David Cameron and and Green Cell, and it was about civil servants in the Treasury, and now it's spread into so many different areas of government. These these accusations um, mm. that actually, you know, if you are the Labour Party, you, it really helps what you put on your leaflets. Yeah, there is a sort of general sort of smell about the whole thing, and but um, I think there it's quite dangerous for the Labour Party actually to try and capitalise too much because I think for most people the smell just covers the whole of Westminster. They think all politicians are, you know, are up to it and they're all as bad as each other. I thought it was interesting when Tony Blair was interviewed about it the other day. He didn't want to go there and I think there is a recognition uh, in some in the Labour Party that when Labour tried to capitalise on Tory Slees back in the 1990s that in the end it backfired on them and they all get tarred of the same brush. Mm. So there's a danger with kind of trying to capitalise too much on it politically, uh, I think, for any of the parties. Libby, move us on to your fantastic column today. Um, after what Olivia Coleman said in that uh, National Theatre interview series on YouTube where she was talking about the stage fright that she has and, and how it's got worse uh, now that um, she's a bit more famous and actually your point is that it's something that we can all feel a bit of what with us being slightly cut off from our usual colleagues and, and friends and our audience. Yes, I just thought it was worth reflecting on the psychological effect of being conditioned all year to be afraid of other people's physical presence mm. and um, and especially of big crowds. Um, and the parallel with stage fright is not an extreme because obviously stage fright is a, an extreme and real thing. But it's it, it sort of it struck me that both of them have these links to very deep primitive lizard brain instincts, <laughs> which the COVID messages have rather cunningly reinforced. If you're living in a cave. You know, and you're only just getting used to your opposable thumbs, you know, and, and so on. Then um, the, you are you, uh, an alien face, an alien person coming near you is worrying. A huge throng is worrying because it's probably the tribe around the corner coming around to invade your cave. And I think they've sort of they've dug into these very primitive fears. And for some people, it's it's gone very deep. And I have talked to people. I mean, this is not me, I hasten to say. I'm not one of these journalists that only writes about my own feelings. Um, but I've talked to a lot of people who really say they're, they're dead nervous, that they're, they're frightened when, when their people come too close to them, when uh, they, they, and the thought of a big audience. And this woman I talked to is very interesting. She's a terrific sort of businesswoman in a very, very macho finance area. And she says the thought, she's Zoom, said, I can close the laptop and I've muted everybody and I'm safe in my kitchen. But... You know, soon I will be facing a big room full of dark-suited men, sort of full of testosterone, and I haven't seen anything like that for over a year. <laughs> so I think this this change is just something. It's interesting to contemplate. I mm. don't think it's a crisis. I don't think it's serious. But I think we should all accept that we've been very oddly conditioned for a year and living in a very odd way. Rachel, do you include yourself in this? 
Definitely. I think also we've all got out of the habit of socialising. So I'm slightly nervous about the idea of going to a party or going to dinner and having to talk to people and sort of beyond your immediate family. We've kind of forgotten how to do it. And I suppose we can all make small talk about whether you've had the vaccine or, you know, but it's, uh, it's sort of... <laughs> Pfizer or AstraZeneca, all of that, yeah. <laughs> One dose or two. To, we've forgotten how to chat and to be sociable and to be in a big group. And I definitely agree with Libby about feeling nervous. I went on the tube the other day because I had to go to um, a work meeting and there were actually quite a lot of people on the tube and I did actually feel quite nervous in a way I would never would have done in the past. Um, and it's sort of strange. You feel as if other people are almost the enemy, don't you? Also, I feel like our anecdotes mm. maybe have got a lot worse because, as you say, Rachel, we've just been talking <laughs> to happened. our... Nothing's happened. Exactly. And also, we're just talking to our friends and family where you can just say, oh, the other day I, I found this yoghurt and it was out of date and something which yeah. you would never think of t- telling anybody else. <laughs> I, I exactly. took the cat to the emergency vet last night. I mean, you know, I can, I can, can I spin that out for an hour. <laughs> that's major yeah. small talk. Yeah, that's quite, that's quite, a, that's quite an event at the moment, Libby. Um, and also, but tell us, Libby, some of the... To go back to the, the issue of, of actual stage stage fright, um, you've got some great examples in the column of, of um, how people have dealt with it. Well, I, I haven't really said how, how they've dealt with it. It's simply, I mean, I know that um, uh, that Olivia Coleman has said that she's had hypnotherapy. Mm. Um, most of the people that I that I looked up and, and read about and thought about, you know, actually they, they they either just nerved themselves or they gave up and did only television and radio. Or, of course, in the case of Elaine Stritch, they drank. I do love the Elaine Stritch story that she tells in her autobiography of when she'd stopped drinking. She was an alcoholic and she managed to stop. And then she was offered a drink in the wings and she said no. And someone said to her, you're not going out there alone. <laughs> and I think that sense of... Of, of company, of, of reassuring yourself in some way or another. Um, but the, 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 I mean, it's just fascinating what, what people feel about big crowds. You talk to any comedian and they will tell you it's a big animal out there. It's a huge, monstrous animal. You've got to conciliate it and tame it and make it love you or it will tear you to pieces. Yeah. And I think even when you're not in a kind of rowdy comedy club, even when it's sort of national theatre, well-behaved sort of audience, I think there is that feeling sometimes, you know, that people have said to me that when the when the, when the, the the babble of voices goes down because the lights have gone down and that silence falls you know the pit of their stomach and i've stood as a sort of minder interviewer you know the kind of thing uh, journalists do at literary festivals and things and you stand next to terrifically applauded you know awarded authors and people sometimes the guy you're standing next to who you're about to introduce you look round and there's a hand shaking you know, yeah. there's, there's a real nerve there. And I think this has just been aggravated by people not being used to big crowds for a year. And I think the people going into boardrooms now, people going into offices, people having to present to their colleagues, which they've done hundreds of times before, will suddenly find that real eyes looking at them in a real world, you know, will will be unnerving. And uh, we're, we're all going to have to get used to it. We've got to be troopers. Just finally, uh, to finish on the on the topic of actors, of course we had the Oscars last night, and my theory, Libby and Rachel, is that actually none of us have actually seen any of these films, more so than any other year. When they go through the list, I recognise and have maybe seen one or two. I wonder if you're any different. Rachel, have you seen any of them? No, I haven't, and I was worrying that that was my failure, but I, I was trying to look them up, but, uh, and I don't think any of them are actually out in this country, are they yet? No, or even who kn- genuinely, who knows? That's, that's the problem. <laughs> Libby? 
Yeah, no, the last thing I saw was was the dig, and I was quite annoyed to have to see that on the um, on the small screen rather than the big screen. Uh, but I tell you that the thing which is really interesting me is the fact that everybody has been watching so much old stuff now. Yes. Because you, you have to, you know, it's all uh, talking pictures, TV, and old rumples, and upstairs, downstairs, <laughs> and God knows what. Well, speak for yourself. And now there's this new thing. Great story in the Times, terrific story, that some company has worked out a way of product placement and um, digitally putting modern products which didn't exist when the old films were made into the old films. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you know, Betty Davis with an Apple Mac on a table or <laughs> Cary Grant enjoying a Magnum. Yeah. Um, you know, they've sort of accepted that we're all, there's not enough new stuff. It hasn't been made because of the, the, the pandemic. So we're all watching old stuff and therefore they've got to bang their advertisements into old stuff. But, actually, and, but you're right, <laughs> it's what, it's what we want of, because when it advised at the start of the pandemic, I interviewed the, um, the, the, the man who's in charge of Channel 5 and he said that's something they cottoned onto really quickly, that actually just putting out repeats, it's what people love. So sort of did it more and more and more not because oh we can't be bothered or we don't have the money to make new stuff but that's what draws the crowds in um and that can only but get it's worse. going to confuse and upset us even more because it's bad enough when you're watching a very old upstairs downstairs and suddenly up come the ads and an, an between, espresso machine in you know the background. and, and uh, it's for espresso machine and a computer and yeah. you hang on you know mr hudson doesn't need that <laughs> yeah. you know, i can't there was that there anymore. was a gladiator with a nike uh tick on his um uh armor the other day did you see that one <laughs> Um, the Roman gladiator wearing night. That was our columnists Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Up next, protests. What have they ever done for us? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Right now, it's time for this. There, the vigil for Sarah Everard, the Bristol protests earlier this month, London's Black Lives Matter protest last summer, Chelsea fans uh, protesting the Super League last week as well. We might have been in lockdown for much of the past year, but that hasn't stopped people going out and expressing their desire for change up and down the country, whether it's Extinction Rebellion or anti-mask people, um, lockdown sceptics marching through the streets of our cities as well. But how effective are protests at creating actual political change? Is that even the point of a protest? We have got a fantastic lineup to discuss that this morning. I'm joined by Kate Hudson, General Secretary of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament and a veteran campaigner. Morning, Kate. Hi, Luke. We've also got Dr Shola Moss-Shogbanamu, a lawyer and women's rights activist who's organised the Women's March in London back in 2017. Morning, Shola. Shola, hello. 
Hello, can Hello. you hear me? Yes, we can. Welcome along. We've also got Anna Burley from Reclaim the Streets. They, of course, organised the vigil for Sarah Everard. Hello. Hi, good morning. And also uh, Noga Levy-Rappaport, who's a uh, climate activist and organiser with the Climate Strikes. Welcome, Noga. Morning. Um, thank you all so much for your time. I'm going to, first of all, easy question, which I'd just like to uh, go around all of you with, which is uh, what is the, the point of protest? Not necessarily the, the change you're trying to get in your specific areas that you're all interested in, but is it about changing policy? Is it about just kicking up a stink and getting on the front page of the, of the newspapers? What is the point? Kate Hudson from uh, CND, if I start with you. Protest is about changing government policy, about changing injustices in society. It's something that's part of our democratic structure and it's been going on for centuries. Usually it takes quite a long time to achieve the goal that you have. Suffrage took um, 50 years or more. The abolition of slavery took a long time. You know, these are things you're in for the long haul. And I would say that they do work may take a while, um, but it's really, really crucial to uh, keep our society open, democratic and advance the interests of everybody. Shola, is that the same with you? I'm thinking of, of the Women's March in London 2017, which you helped organise. Is that the point, changing changing policy? Well, it's not just changing policy. I totally agree with what Kay said, but it's not just cha- changing policy. I think it's important for people to understand that protest is your civic right. Um, protest helps to shape the food you put on your table, the clothes on your back and the roof over your head. Protest is your voice. So whether that is you marching on the street, that you writing a letter, that you doing your thing in your community, that is your form of protest. And it is powerful. And it's not about how long it takes. The fact that it does bring about change, because anytime you go against the grain, this does take it takes time. You, It's an uphill battle trying to change the status quo. Uh, the fact that it then gets splashed across the, the newspapers is not what makes it a protest. Mm. It's the fact that people collectively and individually are demanding a change. That's an interesting point that actually, just as you say, at the very root of it is just people being able to express themselves. Anna, was that the case with you with, with Reclaim the Streets? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was about expressing grief and solidarity. Um, it was about as much changing the way that our laws are written and enforced, uh, which is absolutely something that we can seek to achieve through protest, but also people's mindsets, challenging um, some of the culture that means that, you know, in our case, women don't feel safe. Um, We needed that global conversation to happen so that we can start to push for some of those changes to, to take place. I guess protest is a really, really critical part of change making. It's not the only part. And I think when all of those different parts work together is when you can you know attack on all fronts as it were in a good way um and really change change the world and and Nugga, what about you in terms of uh, the the climate strikes which which you've been involved with what what's motivated you to do that what when you're doing it are, are you thinking is the point i think something we've really seen over the past couple of years with the climate strikes is that it's brought really hundreds and thousands of young people together, feeling this immediate comradeship. You know, when you're all gathering and chanting and marching together, you're recognising that you're all as terrified and as angry as the climate, about the climate crisis as, as each and every one of you. And together you're able to be loud enough to ensure that those in control of the fossil fuel economy, those who are making decisions that are condemning our generation 
to a lifetime of volatile ecological chaos, start to realise that young people are serious about gaining autonomy over our own future. And I really agree with everyone else here that sometimes, you know, the headlines aren't the point of the protest. The point is that you're able to recognise that you can create change on your own and you can create change as part of an immense protest. And it's your right and also your duty in the face of some of these crises of inequality and of ecological catastrophe to take to the streets and reclaim your voice and reclaim your power. Mm. Protest is really about showing our leaders that we're not just begging to have a seat at the table. We're storming in and we're taking charge because we want real action to take place and we won't stop until that happens. And I wonder how, for how long that has been the case and what's changed. And Kate, with you and CND, you've been at this for absolutely years. I wonder how you see protest and the organisation of protest, how it's changed over the, over the years. Well, I think that um, certainly since C&D's been around, which is just over 60 years, um, a lot of the methods re remain the same. There's the, the street demonstrations, there's activity at bases, there's vigils, there's die-ins, sometimes we block roads and, and so on, but uh, street stalls, writing to your MP, the whole range of uh, peaceful activity that you can, you can undertake. Um, but of course, in recent years, we've had a, a kind of an upsurge of different forms of protest as well via uh, social media, all the kind of things um, there, kind of more direct communication, immediate communication, and different ways of organising. Um, but I think, although that is a, a huge additional part of the kind of campaign portfolio, so to speak, I think that actually doing things together in person is is really central to that, and and others who just been talking about being together, that sense of collective action and solidarity. I think that's fundamental uh, mm. to protest because protest isn't just about being against something, it's being for something different, you know, and that kind of mass popular expression of we want something different, you know, we want something good, some change. And there, yes, there are many ways of doing that, and social media brings an extra string to the bow, so to speak. That's an interesting point, I guess, about that need to, or with regards to whatever's happening online, that, that being there somewhere in, in person is still one of the most important aspects. And in terms of reclaim the streets, that was something that you guys had to grapple with quite a lot. Um, this was obviously the, the, after what happened with, with uh, Sarah Everard as well, in terms of the vigil there, you had that kind of stop, start, stop, um, with whether you could actually be there in person. Is that actually physically being there as a group still one of the most important aspects, or, or can you still do lots of this protesting online? Like Kate said, I think you need a bit of everything. You... Um, if you're seeking to not just change um, sort of governments, but mindsets and those mindset changes can help to uh, do some of those other campaign activities like writing to different MPs and so on. Um, you need to do all of those things so that you're visible, so that you're together, so that you're sort of engaging with, you know, my mum wouldn't know we were protesting if it took place only on Twitter. Mm, yeah. um, so you do need all of those different formats to make sure that we, include and hear the widest variety of voices possible. I think for us, um, what was really concerning was that, you know, essentially that in-person protest um, was, there was a blanket ban um, and we need to take that step back, acknowledge the importance of being able to exercise our right to protest um, and make sure that we are really scrutinizing and, and, and ensuring that our 
um, our voices aren't silenced by sort of heavy-handed legislation that is enforced badly. But, but in terms of that impact of reaching some of those audiences, like you said there, um, Anna, you, you referenced your mum. Um, Shola, that, that was one of the most striking things about the Women's March, wasn't it, in 2017, that, um, that just the images it created, do you think they were more impactful? Seeing all those women out marching was more impactful than, say, if someone had done a video online which was viewed lots of times or there was a tweet which got loads and loads of retweets? I think that there was a balance of both, to be honest with you. This isn't just with the Women's March, but even with Black Lives Matter. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm an anti, anti-racist act- activist. So for me, a lot of what we are seeing with um, protests um, is also about raising awareness. And the way social media and online has connected people globally on a singular issue has been beyond um, I think just beyond imagination in a way that the suffragettes couldn't, in a way that 50 years ago we couldn't have, in a way even, you know, a few years ago, even the language has evolved so that those people, whether it's well, if, if it's on women's issues, whether it's women in, in Poland or in Ireland fighting, um, you know, their right, fighting for their right to abortion, or um, you, you have issues Black people across the world all joined together on, on a singular issue. I think what has happened online is people are speaking in a way that they've not been able to speak and people mm. are engaging in a way they've not been able to engage. So that has taken the protest for what you're protesting for and what you're protesting against to um, a much bigger level. Also bear in mind that the media today, mainstream media, don't do justice to, to, um, to protests. Um, particularly, it's not every protest that is giving headlines. It's not every protest that is paid attention to. And sometimes protests, whether it's for climate change or Black Lives Matter, are deliberately, um, you know, misconstrued on media headlines. So all of these protests and these actions need to have a way to put their own narrative and their own media out there. So that's been done on the streets or in person word of mouth, but also being done powerfully online so that there's always a different perspective that people can hear from as to why people are fighting for this, why people want this and why people are fighting against an issue. But that was one thing, uh, Nogo, which we saw with the climate strikes, wasn't it? That if you take the received wisdom that uh, people are maybe less likely to come out on the streets for something, but but they might be more likely to get involved with something, it's online. Actually, with lots of the climate strikes, that was one of the striking things, excuse, excuse the pun, is that there were so many people involved in that who weren't regular protesters. They were people just passing. They were people whose office was around the corner who thought they'd uh, go and give it a go as well. Absolutely. And I think as kind of we entered this COVID era and we had to really rethink the way we protested, we were able to take advantage of the fact that there were so many young people who who really were, were had nothing to do. We were in a lockdown and there was no school and, and people were still angry and still reeling from kind of the after effects of these huge record breaking mobilizations and protests that we'd been able to organize back in 2019. And now we were taking advantage of the digital world that we as young people really, really understand. We've been able to transform that into digital climate strikes and meetings online and making use of these huge sweeping digital networks and using the endless archive that I really think social media is and being able to kind of inspire people through that, through sharing these videos and and bringing attention to the fact that protest historically has been the way we create change. That is how 
we win. That's how we create real action mm. for crises that we're facing. And we've been able to use social media in that way to kind of share and inspire other people. And like you said, people that, that sort of might be standing idly by and, and wondering what they can do. And in this way, we've been able to use social media floods with hashtags and shutting down websites and overwhelming sites and creating digital strikes. And I think it's all about making protests more accessible. And that's almost been a little gift of mm. this, this devastating pandemic that we've been able to reach out to even more people and remind them how we create that change. I'm keen to know from all of you uh, what the successes have been and if you think what you're doing has actually been working. Kate, um, CND has been going for a long while here in the UK. We're about to expand uh, the number of nuclear warheads we have. Um, so I guess on, on that key level, it's it's not worked, the protests. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the increase in nuclear warheads um, and we're having hundreds and hundreds of new members as a result of that, you know, the government choosing to expand the nuclear arsenal when other countries are in the process of reducing them. So a um, little bit of a plug there for CND. It's a good time uh, to get involved. But there have been many, many successes over the years. Um, for example, the first wave of um, mass anti-nuclear action took place in the late 50s, early 60s, when CND was founded. And there was so much protest here and globally, particularly in the United States across Europe, that the partial test ban treaty was introduced and that prevented nuclear weapons being tested in the atmosphere. And, and that had been a huge uh, controversial thing because of the health impacts of all that nuclear radiation in the atmosphere. So that was a very positive development. Mm. Then with the Greenham Common protests in the 1980s, you know, they came about because women wanted to stop cruise missiles uh, coming to Britain and also big protests across Europe. By 1987, the INF Treaty was in place, which banned all those nuclear weapons and they were all removed from Britain. You know, so not the whole hog, so to speak, mm. but, you know, a really good step on the way. And the most recent development is that this is virtually never reported in the UK. Um, at the United Nations, there is now a new treaty called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which makes them illegal. Many, many countries have signed up. You know, so it's all part of a process. And although we haven't yet got rid of them in Britain, the overwhelming majority of the British population, according to opinion polls, not carried out by us, proper opinion polls, show that the majority of people want the abolition of nuclear weapons. You know, so it's part of an ongoing process. Mm. And we've had we've had big successes along the way and we're going to keep on going till we win the whole thing. And Shola, what about you in terms of successes that, that you think have resulted from protests or, or action that you've been involved in? I'm thinking of the Women's March, I'm thinking of some of the Black Lives Matter protests we've had uh, throughout the years. Is there anything that you, you see happening and think, yeah, that's that happened because we went out on the streets and, um, and, and shouted about it? I, I would say particularly... Um, Success comes from the from the social movement, and because it's representing what has not been done before, and it's shaping how how people either vote, how people demand change. I think that that is de that's definitely a step in the right direction. Look, look at for instance what happened last year in the in the midst of the pandemic, because the government did not center women or black ethnic minorities in its COVID response. It was not prepared to, 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 to take care of, for instance, women who are experiencing, experiencing domestic abuse. 
Now, what you've seen from social movement and the way women have raised voices is that when we started to demand again for that change, it meant that the government had to take action to put in place for women who, so that women would not be stuck in the same place, in the same house with those, you know, in lockdown and that they could get mm. some protection. This was not on the minds of the government. And when you talk about Black Lives Matter, look, I know we have the race report that just came out because Boris Johnson denied that institutional racism doesn't exist. That was his response to the protest last year. And to be fair, to be fair that, that wasn't Boris Johnson. That was, that, was the, that was the commission's view, wasn't it? Boris Johnson said that they sort of would look at it with interest and there were some things... That no, 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 please. Last year, Boris Johnson said institutional racism does not exist in the United Kingdom. And his commission, which he put together, came out with the same response. Please, they're all aligned. The point I'm trying to make, though, is the backlash and the response, not just from the black community and Asian community, I think minority community, but nationally and internationally, shows you that the social movement and the protests for Black Lives Matter to be able to establish equality and eradicate racial inequality and racial injustice is working, hmm. even if we have a government that is not listening. Anna, what about you with, with, with Reclaim the Streets, with the um, the vigil, which, as we said, then actually in the end had to properly move online after uh, Sarah Edvard's death. Is there anything throughout some of the things you've been involved with that you think has been a, a tangible win? I, I absolutely uh, do think that we've been able to achieve something. Um, I think one thing that we reflect on a lot is that movements for social change are time after time standing on the shoulders of pioneers who have sort of been championing causes before you um so in sort of claiming a win as it were you don't want to i think that we've helped to speed up some things that were already in train thanks to an amazing work by um other women and other campaigners um things like the government's announcement to recognize misogyny as a hate crime and record it as such mm. um we didn't create that that have been in train for some time and organizations like the Fawcett um society and and campaigning mps like stella creasy have been critical in getting it on the agenda in the first place but i think it came in quicker because the government needed something to say in response to the massive anger that women uh faced um we've had sort of there's been some really positive local impact um our local gold command for the police has uh, every couple of weeks we have a meeting on women's safety and how we're going to improve women's safety in Lambeth. Um, it's a model I hope that we can start looking at how we replicate in other parts of the country so that women's safety is pushed up the priority beyond just a sort of zeitgeist moment of, of a vigil. Um, been giving evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee, engaging with lots of groups of MPs around cross-party amendments to legislation coming in that will make harassment of women illegal, which it currently isn't, uh, which is shocking. Um, but I think part of the success is that we've got a lot of women involved who aren't typically involved in protests. Um, they don't turn up and, and sort of wave placards. Um, they they are passionate and mm. they have engaged in this issue in a way that they haven't before. So I think I feel a great responsibility to um, help keep them engaged in those conversations, make sure that there are tangible things that they can get involved in, that they feel that they have created change because that's how change happens is when lots of uh, usually women with the best change makers get together and, um, uh, and demand something. So I think there's sort of a, uh, it's hard to 
define exactly, but that collective action that we've created or helped to stimulate in places where there hasn't been much yeah. um, action happening is is impactful and I think we'll see that continued impact as we go forward. And it's hard as well where you draw the line between what has the, the protest achieved and what was the government thinking about doing this anyway, that the climate's an interesting one on that, isn't it, Nogo, in terms of what, yes, you know, whenever it was, we had this virtual global summit, um, the UK improving its emissions targets, the US improving its emissions targets. Is that because people have been involved in climate strikes and have been taken to the streets and Extinction Rebellion has been holding up traffic and smashing windows and the like, or is it just because the government has, has, has come to that thought because they've looked at the situation and they thought that's the best course of action? I mean, I think it's really clear that the pressure we've been able to create over the past couple of years has had an immense impact. When you kind of look at even just at the media coverage of the climate crisis around a decade ago, it was in no way given the same amount of weight that it is now. And now we've really been able to push the climate crisis to kind of the forefront of the national conversation. I think that's an immense win. Um, of course, many policies that the government is still pushing out are incredibly disappointing and incredibly dangerous. And we know that as COP26, the important UN climate change summit, is taking place in Glasgow this year, all eyes will be on the UK to take real action and showcase global leadership on climate change. And so it, it, whilst it's difficult to say, you know, yes, the climate crisis is solved because governments are acting, I, that, that's sort of impossible to say right now. But we can say, well, we are making a difference. We are able to see that the governments are feeling the pressure and that there are kind of at least imitations of green policies being pushed forward because governments are worried. They are worried that and afraid of the action that young people have shown we're willing to take. They're afraid of the millions of people who took to the streets um, in the climate strikes of 2019. They're afraid of the real damage that we can cause when we stand up and say we will not sit around and wait for governments to come to this conclusion on their own. We will keep pushing and ensure that real, fundamentally transformative plans to act on climate change and to kickstart a green recovery are put in place. We have the economic capacity and the moral duty to deliver climate justice and we'll keep pushing for that. I think sometimes it's it's almost it's it's almost damaging to a movement to look back and say, well, have we been successful or not? If anything, the only thing I think that matters is to keep looking forward and say, when can we next take action? When can we next ensure that there is decisive sweeping action on behalf of the world's most powerful political figures? When can we ensure that we will no longer sit around and watch our leaders crumble in the face of responsibility, but we will make sure they stand up and change what is happening? And that is where we end this edition of the Times Red Box Politics podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, a one-day wonder, Luke Jones sitting in for Matt Chorley. Don't worry, Matt will be back uh, tomorrow and Wednesday with all PMQs and all that usual stuff. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Remember, you can download this podcast and subscribe wherever you usually get your podcast from. The Times Radio app is a good place to start. And why not try listening to Times Radio, the actual radio station that goes out live and stuff. Um, I do weekend breakfast, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Give that a whirl. Goodbye.